There's probably not one business in the world that hasn't had a fail, you know, and I think any success has to come about via failure. You learn from a failure, therefore you adapt and pivot and you then therefore success ensues. So, This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum. And in this episode, we'll continue the conversation with Paul and Pascal Avrol to delve into their property investing strategies, particularly overseas in the UK to find out about their insight on mindset and why they chose to invest and all the tips, tricks and lessons they've learned along the way. Successful in their previous investments, Pascal shares what the initial strategy was when it came to investing. It's because we were both complete rookies when we started, it's been a real journey of learning along the way. So we've done pretty well. We always could have done better in the beginning and also our strategy and our endpoint and our goals have developed along the way. So in the beginning, the first one that I bought was so that I could have a place to live. <laughs> but um, as it followed on from that, we we really like it. And it wasn't until that we, we got to Australia actually that we came across the strategy of negative gearing because in New Zealand, you can't depreciate a property. You used to be able to, but you can't do that so much. So there's less negative gearing that goes on in New Zealand and we came to Australia and realized what a big strategy it is for a lot of people but we weren't quite on board with it. It wasn't really our comfort level. We understood what was going on in Sydney and Melbourne at the time and that people were just buying properties, refinancing within two years, buying more, buying more and really successfully growing their portfolios but we also understood the the downside of that is what can happen in a recession with the drop in property prices. And we didn't have so much comfort around being tied to topping up properties and having to to pay that difference no matter what happened. So we went for the cash flow strategy. And why due to market instability, they chose to refrain from having a negatively geared portfolio? Well, our whole portfolio is positively geared. So we've got nothing that's negatively geared. I mean, neutral is sort of break-even neutral is probably the closest we've gotten to negative gearing. Uh, but So I see why, I mean, both of us sort of agree on this. It's, we see why negative gearing can be a strategy for many, but there's a little, I would say, for everyone that does well from it, there's many who who have found themselves in a difficult situation if they, you know, maybe fell into the trap of buying in a mining town, you know, before that ended and so on. Uh, so while, while negative gearing is a strategy, um, certainly not one that we adopt. We're definitely uh, the positive gearing and definitely the cash flow. Um, getting cash flow is important to us. Thinking about their property experiences this far, Paul and Pascal recall the time where their investing moments didn't go quite as planned. We haven't had anything that's really lost a whole lot of money or gone really, really pear-shaped. But what we have done is come close, very, very uncomfortably close to losing a lot of money a number of times. Mm -hmm. So it's been the real discomfort. And we've made decisions that we've really, really learned from and looked back and gone, well, we're never going to do that again. But it's around things like... um, being um, not being being sure of getting the lending at one point, but when the property actually comes through, 
uh, times have changed, timelines have changed, and there's a high probability that we just couldn't get lending and may have to walk away and walk away from our deposit. And that came through literally with with a day to spare. I think that if the bank hadn't been slightly flexible on the time frame, because it was around the Christmas time frame when everything came through, um, we would have it would have gone belly up. Um, some similar types of things with actually it seems to be lending lending stories with lending on in the UK as well that uh, just ended up being a lot more difficult than we thought it would be but came through in the end but because it was the UK I remember just midnight phone calls or I remember sitting in bed and it was 1am or 3am and we were just waiting for a call I think from the bank saying what they'd valued the property at because we were waiting to make sure that it um, was going to be enough um, to cover what we needed. We had gone through a period where there'd been some uncertainty about valuations in the UK and we were holding hands and just holding our breath for this number to come through. And and in the end, it did come through. It was what we needed, but it, it was just very, very close. With such changing conditions and the emotional strain property decisions can sometimes have on an individual, Paul expands on why property investing is an emotional process even though people say it shouldn't be. People say that property shouldn't be an emotional thing, but you know it is. It's, let's face it, <laughs> it is. Uh, but yeah, you know, and we had we had Plan Bs and Plan Cs and Plan Bs in place, but it doesn't take away the the uh, anxiety that comes with with getting things over the line. Um, that one with the UK, for example, was um, again it was it was like a hair's breadth that we got it through over the line. With that in mind. Paul takes us to another one of his and Pascal's worst investing moments. I mentioned that I was living in the house in Christchurch for, my, for a while, renting out all the rooms. And so that I was managing that myself. I didn't have an agent or anything. So that was you know, um, just a self-managed property. And I had most, on the, in most um, for the most part, I had really good tenants and I was quite... Um, I had good insight into people, I think, and I can see someone in general. I definitely didn't have a really rigid process of vetting people before they came in. I usually went on a, hey, this person seemed like a good person, looks like they're pretty secure and stable. <laughs> um, I've had a couple that didn't quite do that. I mean, one guy, I, I got up one morning, because I lived there, I got up one morning about 7 a.m., walk into the kitchen, and he's he's there in the kitchen. I say, how you doing? I'm, good morning. And he looks up at me and He'd obviously just got home and he was, I don't know if you know the term, off his chops, but he was so out of it that he couldn't put together a sentence. He couldn't actually articulate what he was saying <laughs> at that point. Uh, and I don't think it was alcohol. But so, yeah, I literally, I literally kicked him out the next day. Um, and the other one, yeah, this was all in the lead up to the, funnily enough, the earthquake because I would have another guy who just made an absolute, absolutely trashed the place, his room and the, the bathroom at the time. Um, not not in, a, in an aggressive way, just drunken idiocy. Uh, at that point, and, I, and again, the day I kicked that guy out was the morning of the Christchurch earthquake. So I walked home. Uh, the earthquake happened. I walked home that afternoon, walked up my driveway to see the wall. We had one brick wall, you know, sort of one double brick wall on one side. That pretty much mostly fallen down and I could see my bed through the wall that wasn't there anymore and um, so the feeling of walking up my drive and seeing that the house was uh, devastated that was probably a really really dark and low moment for in terms of investment and I was thinking well now what you know so that was really difficult but uh, you know, with that said it 
you learn from those things and you learn lessons and you, you and there's a huge mindset shift in dealing with those kind of things. It's strengthening. Faced with such devastating outcomes, what exactly did Paul do to move on from that point in his investing career? Well, I mean, there's a big psychological shift that happens when you go through a, a major event like that because you, 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 there's actually guilt. I had, I had quite a lot of guilt associated with going through the earthquake and, and actually living through the earthquake when not many people didn't. Um, survivor guilt, yeah. And uh, so that was one thing psychologically, but um, in terms of sort of financially and everything, uh, we were, I was one of the people who had insurance and we made sure that I, you know, I was I was when I first started buying property and buying that property, I made sure I had the risk management sorted out. So that was one of the massive things that got us through is that we were able to use that risk management strategy and put it into place. So we got it. Our insurance actually sent a team out quite quickly. And I think I was fortunate in getting hold of them before everybody started calling you know, their insurance. So I was lucky in getting in quite early and they came out and made my house safe to live in and habitable. Uh, within about three weeks of the earthquake. Uh, so I could then start renting rooms again very quickly and live there. It wasn't perfect, but certainly um, it was uh, it was in a state that could be lived in. And just to let you know, Tyrone, what was quite common in Christchurch at the time was people would have to move out of their property and would end up having to rent. And they would be renting at a premium because properties were, there was a shortage. And they were also paying the mortgage still on their destroyed property. So it was a really, really tough financial time for a lot of people. And we were lucky in that sense. With emotions running high and people still being affected by the earthquake, Paul shares how grateful he is for the outcome he found himself in and why is his exit strategy that allowed him to get back on his feet. Even now, we're, we're um, how many years now? Eight, nine years over. Eight, nine years since the quake. Um, there's people who still haven't really gotten everything sorted with their properties and, and insurances and so on and, and obviously the psychology. But uh, yeah, so there's a lot of people who actually are still really struggling and trying to survive uh, over there albeit that they've gotten through it Uh, with that particular property in the end it was habitable it was livable it was rentable uh, but I didn't want to be there anymore and so what worked for me my strategy my exit strategy from that was uh, at the time in the sort of preceding two years the following two years there was a lot of property that was safe to live in it's on okay land but it wasn't insurable anymore for a new purchase, if you were a new buyer on an existing property and that had been through the earthquake, it was unlikely we were going to get insurance. So there were many investors jumping in who were just buying at auctions uh, for very low amounts. So I, it's, yeah, it's called as is where is. So at the time, you go onto the realestate.com version of um, in, in New Zealand and it says property for sale as is where is, which means no insurance, buy it at your own risk. And so a lot of a lot of investors would come and buy property at auction, very cheap, and then rent it out because they don't care if the property um, isn't insured. Like later on, they can you know knock it down and build and build a, or develop. So um, I sold mine at an auction in the end, and with that and the insurance and everything, I was able to move, walk away from the the property with uh, enough to be able to start again, which is what we did when we got to Adelaide. While these were certainly circumstances that no investor should ever have to go through. 
Paul and Pascal share that there have been many times that made investing worth it. I think um, Paul and I were discussing this recently and we don't have a particular aha moment probably other than the aha moment that I had in the beginning and Paul had in the beginning when we realized that actually property would work and it was something that we could do. Other than that, I think what's happened along the way is we've developed a sort of calculated risk appetite and we have done a couple of things where we say look this is a good deal we don't know how we're going to do it um, we did this on a piece of land in New Zealand um, it's going to be about a year before it we have to settle on this we know that we can figure out a way and there is doing that and there's being silly and there's you know you've got to try and find the middle ground in between but we've found that we've been able to do this and it, it that our the st- steadfastness, I guess, of our nerves and being able to do those types of things has really developed. And that's been really cool, I think, because you can't move forward that much without having a little bit of the ability to do that. Mentioning one of the UK investments, Paul and Pascal explain the details surrounding this particular property purchase and how they were able to purchase property overseas without actually being there. We connected with a team over there and we knew that the UK was a really viable option and we already owned a few sort of what they call buy-to-lets or we call here, you know, your standard rental investments where you've got one tenant, uh, one tenancy agreement. And uh, I'll just add in there, we also knew that uh, non-UK residents could buy property in the UK by setting up a company and that there would be, not that many, but there would be some lenders that would be open to lending. So we knew it was possible. And so, we, we, but what we didn't do, what we couldn't do at the time, is move to the UK to spend time finding the property, going through the purchase, uh, renovating. I don't have specific skills in renovation so, per se, so really it was about leveraging the right team and getting a reliable and trustworthy team to do the work. So we really had to try and build a good relationship with the, with a reliable team. Difficult when you've never done it before and you've got to put a lot of trust into a team you've never met. But we spent a good amount of time doing our due diligence, making sure that we had the right team in place. Uh, they, the team that we found, which is now t- uh, um, a company that we are looking to work with uh, for moving forward, did an amazing job of sourcing the right property based on what we wanted. We knew what cash flow we wanted. We knew what our budget was. And they essentially offered a bespoke service that to find a property, offer and, and, and do the full conversion, project manage it, find a letting agent or a rental agent uh, who would then find tenants for us. So we didn't actually have to lay our, ha- lay our hands on the property itself. We just managed the managers, let's say. Having found a great company to work with, they shared the process they went through to source a reliable company. Uh, word of mouth, actually. I mean, we did do some property education, which led us to having a conversation with someone, which led us to uh, looking. There was a source, something called a, like a sourcing platform where you can find property sourcing agents via the platform. That didn't quite work out, but through that, we met the owner of this business. And through that, we decided to work with them. So it was actually sort of a number of different referrals that got us there. Mm. And there's actually, there's a lot of sourcing agents in the UK, a lot of people that perhaps uh, are into investing but don't have the capital yet, go and source properties and sell the deals on. And then you've got um, companies like the the guys that we work with who have been doing it for years. And what they do is they can't buy every single property that they find. So they're also providing that service for other people. So there are a number of sourcing agents in the UK and 
if you know that it's just it's just looking them up the tricky thing is is finding which ones are trustworthy and which ones aren't and we actually got close to doing a couple of deals at one point um but because of our due diligence we found some some suspicious details and were able to challenge them and and quickly back out before we committed so um we sort of wiped our brows uh, because of that. Um, so there was a little bit of a process and I think it really did emphasize to us how much trust and the relationship is just um, so key. Uh, it's it's crucial to the success of something like this. With the potential to have lost money while working with these companies, Paul also shares what they had learned in order to ensure the companies they worked with were legitimate and trustworthy. So there's an education there, right? We, we had to do a lot of educa- personal education around the compliance of property, what the legal system, how the legal system works, um, how the sort of property environment is. I had a fair amount of an idea what UK property was like, but certainly not with the model we use, HMO. There's a lot of compliance around, because uh, you've got six tenants or more, you've got to deal with the fire alarm systems and the um, the risk safety and that kind of thing. So yeah, lots to learn and we needed to know about that. We couldn't just let, it, let somebody go and do it because as soon as we got the keys handing over, we then needed to manage the letting agent as well. So you need to understand the property itself and how it works. Another factor Paul and Pascal had to consider was the difference between UK financing and Australian financing and if deposits are still required. There, it depends on the lender, really. I mean, that there are the um, the big banks lenders that, and the interest rates are really good over there. Say between two and three percent for somebody living there. Unfortunately, we didn't qualify for that kind of rate. But there are a number of what do they call them second tier lenders or non bank lenders who have different levels of appetite. So the beautiful thing is often, yes, you have to put down a deposit. What we did in the beginning is we bought the property cash and then we got a bridging loan, which was for six months at a higher interest rate, but it meant that we didn't need to show them a property that was in a rentable state because it wasn't at that stage. And then when we had bought it up to a rentable, so we were able to, to pull some money out from that to fund the conversion. And then after that six-month period, we were able to show them some um, tenancy agreements and we were able to move on to uh, a long-term um, finance agreement onto a, a, a five-year mortgage. So, yes, you do often need a deposit in, in a way, I guess, but there's different ways that you can do it, such as that way. The beautiful thing about the UK is that they don't means test. So, they're not asking us what our income is. Um, it's really based on the history of the company. That's why it was so difficult for us in the beginning because our company was new and it didn't have history. So actually we even got, we boiled down to at the time, just one lender that was willing to help us out. And as time goes on and we're able to show our credit history and that we've been landlords for some time, we will get better and better offers come through. So it was doing the real hard yards in the beginning. And what type of accounts and entities they needed in the UK in order for this to work? The main thing was getting a bank account. You needed to actually be in the bank to set up the bank account. So we went to the UK to do that. And uh, that, that's that's the one visit we made when with, with regards to this property. And uh, at the same time while we were there, you know, we set up the business, the company name, the limited company and so on. But yeah, the main one thing is just the bank account. And we set up a limited liability company, LTD. 
uh, which which is you know, managing the asset. And as Pascal said, the lender doesn't means test. They meet, they just look at the asset you're buying, what the return is going to be, or what the value of that asset is, and the obviously history of the limited company as well. And what what that does mean for us is that we are kind of maxed out a little bit in our current situation in Australia and in New Zealand as well because they do means tests. So they've they've said, okay, you have what is it, seven properties, that's all we're going to lend on. And especially with the lending has become tighter both in Australia and New Zealand. So if we didn't have the UK as an option, we would be starting to scratch our heads and think, how else would we do it? And I'm sure there's ways, there are ways that we could be creative there. But the beauty is that we can push on with our investments in the UK uninhibited by the the means testing. Coming up after the break, we'll delve further into Paul and Pascal's overseas investing journey. Until the markets in Australia and New Zealand shift or the lending shifts a little bit more and becomes a little more comfortable for the lenders, we'll probably focus on the UK, yeah. And we're helping people who are also looking over there into Australia, into, into the UK from Australia to find them as well. Why seeking out education and networking have been important parts of their journey so far. Um, but actually, you know, where a lot of our education has come from is a lot of reading, a lot of podcasts, a lot of workshops. And, and one of the biggest things is networking and growing um, growing around us like-minded people who have a similar passions, similar values, and, and learning from each other. That's been massive. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shum, and you're listening to Property Investory. Continue on the subject of investing in the UK, Paul and Pascal shared the criteria they had in mind when looking for a property to purchase. Well, we knew the budget and we knew the model. We knew what the model looked like and what was what was possible. So within the budget, we sort of say to them, yeah, look, this is what we've got available to invest. They, these guys have done hundreds of them. So they really know where to find them and, and how to find the, you know, the good ones. And uh, and then what kind of cash flow we're looking at, really. So we knew we wanted the HMO model and we knew we wanted good cash flow, 15% plus. And, uh, and based on that, they go and say, okay, well, look, we've got these properties available and they send us the sort of MO of the property and say, and say is, this, is this what kind of what you're looking for? And we do, this is again where the education is important because we did then do our own due diligence on the area, the infrastructure, uh, local letting um, rates and um, trends and so on, just to make sure that what we're getting is actually uh, fundamentally going to be a good property. Um, these guys are really good, but doesn't mean that we shouldn't be putting our own effort in to do the due diligence as well. Uh, so yeah, so we give them you know as much information of what we want out of it, and they go and find it. It's a, it's a very um, sort of I guess a boutique service. How did you also get a deal like this where you could actually put that many tenants in there too? Because was it because of the rate of return that you requested? That's why they had to structure this way because six tenants is almost buying like a unit or unit bunch of units. The HMO model would be minimum four. But what they say is four bedrooms will cover your costs. So just to give you a little bit of an explanation as well of the HMO model is uh, the landlord pays for everything from the council taxes to the um, the TV license, internet, the power. So everything is paid for. But they the rent that we get in is a premium level of rent as well. So um, we... We know that 
in this model, about four bedrooms will cover costs. And then they say that any bedroom on top of that is like the cream. So that's where your profit comes from. So five, six is really good. And it's often manageable as well. You can often get a three bedroom property and turn it into a six bed. But then you can get other types of properties. The, the really cool thing about the, the UK is that they've got things like old, they've got old villas, but they've got old churches. They've got old office buildings. They've got um, high street shops that aren't being used anymore with the decrease in retail. They've got all these various types of buildings and if you can get other bigger houses that can convert into seven eight nine beds as well then the cash flow just starts to really really um, escalate so we went with the six bed because that was where our budget was um, but the there is a lot of scope um, some people I think there's there's HMOs that have sort of 19 beds and they're, they're almost run like um uh, like a boarding house. Yeah, I'm sort of thinking so, some of them are also, it's the typical student model, you know, like student accommodation. But a lot of these people actually um, living in the this accommodation are young professionals and that's who we have in our property. But yeah, it is almost like the hostel type thing where you have um, uh, a big complex, but it is, it is being done over there. There's, there's a lot of those styles of accommodation and it's because of the demand i mean there is definitely a huge demand for this type of accommodation with phenomenal returns greater than those in the australian market and positive cash flow properties in their portfolio paul shares why they plan to continue investing in the uk market well like pascal said it's uh, uh we've sort of almost capped here on this end so until the until the markets in australia and new zealand shift or the lending shifts a little bit more and becomes a little more comfortable for the lenders we'll probably focus on the uk yeah and we're helping people who are also looking over there in, into australia into, into the uk from australia to find them as well and um, just on the just to sort of sh- talk about numbers for a second the in the UK, that probably that HMO model is probably makes up about eighteen to twenty percent of rentals in the UK. So single room lets, and that's because people can't afford to buy property. They can't afford to rent a whole house themselves, and for for many people, they're working on contracts and not full time. So it's easier and it's more convenient for them just to move into a room that's uh, private and it's got a bathroom, and it's fully furnished. And uh, all the bills are paid. They just need to pay their rent. It's very simple for them. Uh, so, th- th- so that's why it's a really strong model. And I don't think it's going anywhere for a long time. While the generally cheaper property prices have drawn Paul and Pascal to the UK property market, they share that a good bargain still has to be sought out. In, in the UK, the properties are quite a bit cheaper. And, that, and that's the amazing thing. It depends is, where you look. Yeah. yeah I, I, well, like, I, I guess it would be like comparing regional areas to Sydney, perhaps. If you buy in London, it's a completely different thing and you will end up being negatively geared per se there or even in the South. A lot of people do uh, capital strategies in the South where they buy a property, do it up, sell it on for a great profit. Whereas it's in the middle of England where the the prices are still really low. I think, I, I mean, our, ours was... Um, £88,000 to purchase the property, which is equivalent of about $150,000. And yeah, and yet the rent that we get in is about um, £1,000 per month. So that's... That's after expenses. After ex- after everything. So that's, uh, what's that, about 1800 It'll be about $1,800 at the moment. Mm. Yeah. So, and even our return on investment based on that is about 17%, but that is because... The we didn't 
pull out as much. We had to leave a little bit more in the property than we'd expected. So if we had actually pulled out what we had estimated and what we probably will be able to do in a couple of years when the market and the valuations adjust again, um, and we have heard from from our partners over there that they that it has adjusted back up now. We would be able to pull out more, and therefore our return on investment would be quite a bit higher than that as well. And that's expected. I mean, guys over there that do these deals, they don't they don't go for deals that provide any less, really. Jumping into the mindset side of things, Paul and Pascal share why was their past and vision for the future that pushed them to use property as a vehicle for financial freedom. I think uh, I think both of us have alluded to sort of our, our upbringings and, and, and our parents and generationally, my parents as well as Pascal's were quite um, reserved and with money and, and there was a lot of fear around money. I think you know some of my family members lost a bit in bad investments, not property, but just putting money with the wrong person. And uh, so, uh, as I was being brought up, the, the language around money was quite negative. Money doesn't grow on trees. Uh, money is the root of all evil. That was kind of that kind of language. Uh, so I never really saw any of these opportunities. Um, so I think for for me, it was about shifting my belief systems around money and, and how that uh, and how money works and what it means to me and how I'm going to use it. So really out of all of this, we want freedom. We want to be able to support our families and we want to be able to live a, a comfortable life. And it's not about having you know, super fast cars and, and private jets. It's for us, it's just about, and this is the point of um, being financially free is not all of that. Being financially free is literally just being able to pay all of your expenses and, and uh, have, have a little bit left over without having to work if you don't want to. Yeah, um, probably the optimal word to put underline and in capital letters with exclamation marks is freedom. <laughs> And it, it means for – we've seen our parents go through retirement and my my parents stayed in jobs where they weren't being treated that well and they weren't enjoying it and they had to stay in those jobs because they needed to get as much as they possibly could before they retired. And I would have really loved if they'd been in the position to free themselves of that or to just say, hey, screw it, it's not worth it five years before that and save, um, you know, a bit of extra hair loss and, and things like that. So we want to be able to do that. And we understand as well the, the way that the world's going in terms of jobs, that there won't be as many jobs in the future. So if they're finding it hard now, I mean, trying to find a new job as a 61-year-old is not easy now. So it's not going to be easy in the future and the government is certainly not going to be able to support us with the growing populations and the, and the decreasing amount of jobs. So we want to be able to create that freedom for ourselves, both to protect ourselves and our children from that, but also I'd, I'd really love to be able to help out our parents when we get to the stage where we um, are able to do that. With such inspiring goals to work towards, what types of educational resources did Paul and Pascal go through in order to know what they know today? So we, we've done a couple of a number of property education, so workshops, um, mentorships, and that kind of thing. So, um, but actually, you know, where a lot of our education has come from is a lot of reading, a lot of podcasts, a lot of workshops, and, and one of the biggest things is networking and growing, um, growing around us like-minded people who have a similar passions, similar values, and, and learning from each other. That's been massive. And so as much as many courses as you can do, I think the, 
you can do courses until the cows come home, but really the education comes from taking action and having the right team around you um, that you, know, you can learn from and trust. And so they can lift you and you can lift them. I'd probably like to, to add to that podcasts as well. We've listened to a lot of podcasts. There's a lot of um, UK podcasts as well about investing in the UK. And um, other than that, School of Hard Knocks, you know, just I think so many of our lessons have come from almost really messing it up. And that's a that's by the grace of God, we sort of didn't have to lose all that money, but uh, there's no better way to instill a lesson that you'll never forget than uh, coming really, really close. Speaking of lessons, both Paul and Pascal share some of the books they've read that they've recommended aspiring or seasonal investors to learn and read from too. I've probably got a couple. Pascal's probably got a couple as well. Uh, a really good book I read, which was around procrastination. It was actually uh, it was for creators initially. It was written for creators. A book by Stephen Pressfield called World, sorry, War of Art. So opposite to Art of War, War of Art. And it was about, first half was about understanding what what is procrastination and why do we not take action on things and that was massive for me because I read it in my 20s and from reading that book and the other half of the book there is then to then how to become a professional and it wasn't in the traditional sense it was more of if you're living life making false promises and letting people down are you really a professional if you're saying you will do something and then finding an excuse not to do it are you really a professional? So it was about stepping up into um, being the professional at life. And that was a big, big book for me. It's a very small book, very easy book to read, but it was a big lesson. Um, that was a big one. And uh, there's a couple more, Pascal. Yeah, one of the ones that really helped my mindset was The Slight Edge because Jeff uh, that's Jeff Olson because I can see a pattern in my um, in my life leading up to this point where I would give something a go kind of you know get a get on a roll with it but then give up before I had got anywhere near mastery of anything and it just really really highlighted illustrated um, how the in, imperceptible progress that you have um, daily adds up to huge things over time if we just have faith and stick at it and know where we're going. So that was huge for me. I needed that book. Um, But there's another small book that's called Go For No, and it's actually a book for salespeople about um, pushing through the rejection. But the huge lesson from that was about failure and how instead of running from failure towards success, we have to go through failure in order to get to success. And that was a real change in perception for me and has made me be a little bit more friends with failure in our life. Expanding on this idea of seeing failure as your friend, Paul also shares his take on why it's important to make mistakes as much as it is to succeed. There's probably not one business in the world that hasn't had a fail you know, and I think any success has to come about via failure. You learn from a failure, therefore you adapt and pivot, and you then therefore success ensues. So, um, so I mean, failure is a part of it. You, you can't avoid it, and that's why we can't run away. With such reflective thoughts on mindset and failure, as well as success, Paul and Pascal take a moment to tell us the best advice they've ever received. Actually, I've been a few months ago been watching a fair bit of Jordan Peterson. Loving or not, he's got some good insights. Uh, and he, he talked about judgment and he said, you know, before, when you meet someone, when you're talking to someone before you judge, uh, think about perhaps that, is it possible that that person uh, may have something I could learn from them? So if I actually listen to them, there's always something I could probably learn from that person. And that for me was great just to not always 
jump to conclusion about a person and give them the opportunity uh, for me to learn from them. That was a big lesson for me. Pascal? Perhaps one that sticks out for me is that sometimes you need to ask for forgiveness instead of permission. (laughs) And it might not work in every situation, but it just helps. Otherwise, sometimes you can become just... um, what's the word, stagnated or, or just you come to a halt and you can't move forward. But sometimes just move forward anyway. And if you have to say sorry or ask forgiveness later on, then so be it. And the advice they would have personally given themselves 10 years ago. I would say to myself, buy a property and then buy another one and another one. Because <laughs> I didn't start early enough. I was in my 30s really when I started investing properly. And so I would probably say, just get on board, take action. Um, you're, you know, you're young and you've got many years to make some mistakes and then recover from those mistakes. I think that's one thing, you know, not enough people start young enough. Um, they could be, you know, easily um, able to pop out the top of their business or, you know, let's say retire or get out of the rat race, whatever you want to call it, much earlier if they start earlier. Um, and then I'd say also learn about compounding interest because that is a very simple way of getting started and using compounding to um, to build an amass, a mass um, amount of money over, over the period of time, you know, being patient over a period of time. And for you, Pascal? Uh, mine would be on the practical side, it would be to put my money into index funds. For the, for the compounding because I was really geeky with money. I still am. I'm really geeky with money when I was young and I could save really, really well. And with the power of time, even if I had planned to invest in property, even just putting that money and letting it compound for 10 years would have done great things. Uh, I had no, I, I didn't learn about index funds and compounding interest until I think my late twenties or early thirties. So, and then the other one on a personal note would be to learn how to laugh at myself. I was, I think, um, family friends described me as the most solemn child that they'd ever seen. And I, I, I don't, I don't think that people that know me now would, would think that is true. I, I'm not the, I'm not the clown of the party, but I, I can take things lightly, but I spent a lot of my early years and my teens just wrapped up, wrapped in knots because I was taking everything so seriously. Um, most of all myself. So there is power in just being able to laugh something off and laugh at yourself. While the past is something they can't change, both have been on a wonderful property journey so far and thus share what they're most excited for looking five years into the future. I'd say it would be the UK. I'm, mm. I'm so excited about, because we talked about the, there's the HMO that we did and I think we only need a couple more of those to get ourselves to the kind of cash flow where we can stop working our day jobs. Um, and so that is super exciting to see that, the light at the end of the tunnel. But like I said, that's just the small ones. There are these bigger ones, these um, really, like say an old pub, buying an old pub and converting that into a number of units or into a big HMO and just working with our partners over there to do some of those kinds of projects or um, partnering with people from Australia to do those kinds of projects or helping other people um, over the side of the world to do those kinds of projects as well. Um, from our sort of network here and friends and so on online and from our Facebook group sort of asking what we're up to and, and, and so it's was, it was really cool to be able to share this journey with you and, and anyone listening so um, that, that's exciting for us just to share our information share our knowledge and, and show that it is actually possible to 
to get into it and get out of it as well uh, a little earlier than we think. You know, we don't just need one property over 30 years. You can do really well um, on a cash flow basis, at least, um, with different and slightly different models, slightly out-of-the-box models. On a final note, Paul and Pascal take a moment to reflect on what they believe all their success have been so far has occurred due to skill, intelligence, and hard work, or was it on luck? As somebody said to me once, they said, luck is uh, built up of hard work and persistence. So um, so any luck that we've had is, I think, built up of, of, of deciding to take action. And like the book that Pascal mentioned, The Slight Edge is just taking action in incremental ways every single day, and then the luck happens. Uh, so look, I think there's a lot of, uh, there's a certain amount of synchronicity that I think can happen when you're you know, working on a project or anything like that, where things align really well, and you're like, that was fortunate. And so you could call that luck. Uh, but I think sometimes it's about taking action. Yeah. I have a, a personal philosophy on life that you do everything you can do within your power really well. And that is by all means your responsibility, but there's going to be a whole load out there that is out of your control. So I like to have faith or I believe in God. So believe that, um, things will turn out the way they're supposed to and just leave it up to that. So whether you want to call that luck or not, that's probably the part of luck um, that, yeah, some of that has happened and some of that has been um, a contributor to our success. And I think that there's no one in the world that could say absolutely everything is under their absolute control. Mm. Um, But Another, and there's a book as well, also The Richest Man in Babylon, and there's a really great section of that that's about luck and debunking how people get lucky. I think it's quite interesting. A lot of people um, in the UK say to Paul, oh, you're so lucky that you live in Australia, and we're kind of thinking, well, how much of that is luck, really? It's hard work, isn't it? <laughs> with such wonderful advice, tips and stories shared, here are some of the ways you can get in contact with Paul and Pascal Avril. We'd absolutely love, if this is an opportunity to mention it, um, for anyone listening who wants to, to have a look at our Facebook group. It's called PINANZ, P-I-N-A-N-Z, uh, Property Investor Network Australia and New Zealand. And it's just a, it's a small growing group at the moment where it's really about sharing knowledge, sharing insights, tips, tricks, and so on. And um, there's a thread in there for... Uh, promoting your business, which we kind of try and keep separate from the main feed because we want that to be about shared knowledge and networking. Um, so yeah, that's, that's on Facebook, P-I-N-A-N-Z. Um, we're also both on Facebook. It's not hard to find us. Um, if you're including my name in your show notes, um, if you Google me, you'll probably find my podcast, which is called The Man Bits Podcast. It's straight up chat about men's health, uh, which is a side, side project. Um, pretty easy to find us. Thank you to Paul and Pascal Avril, our guests on this episode of Property Investory. If you want to hear more about their journey, then visit our website at propertyinvestory.com.au.